0: There's three ways people have basically built wealth in this country, real estate, the stock market, or creating their own business or being a very early employee at what becomes a very successful business. Those are the three routes. It is inappropriate, I think, to claim that one of those three is better or worse than the other.
1: Welcome to the Rent to Retirement podcast, your resource for passive real estate investing and retirement strategies. If you're new to real estate or planning your financial future, you're in the right place. Join us at renttoretirement.com to find your path to financial freedom and an easy, carefree retirement. Enjoy the show. Hey, rent retires it's Adam Schrader here with another episode joined as usual by Zach Master, the founder and CEO of rent to retirement and we are pleased to have with us Bradley Clark. He is the founder of Clark Asset Management, former publisher of The Motley Fool, and author of the new book, Be the Bird, and we're going to talk about the financial industry today. Bradley, thanks for joining us.
0: Uh, thank you very much, Adam and Zach. I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, absolutely. Pleasure to have you on. Just tell us a
1: little bit about, you know, like we said, I don't think we've delved too much into the financial asset side of things. You know, how did you get into that? And what exactly is it that you do in general?
0: Yeah, I'll keep the how I got into it very brief. Uh, We all have those handful of moments in our lives, those aha moments that change us. And I had one in the spring of 1996, but I didn't really know it for another 15 years. And so, I was taking modern portfolio theory at Stanford Business School from a professor named Bill Sharp. Bill Sharp is a Nobel Prize winner, the father of the Sharp ratio, a big thinker in modern portfolio theory, and he basically systematically undressed the asset management industry for for me in a in a lecture and exposed it as largely fraudulent based on the compensation arrangements. And the way stocks are picked and the products are packaged, it had a huge effect on me. And then later in my life, I became the publisher and chief marketing officer at The Motley Fool and got reconnected with the topic. And I think at that point, knew that it was an inevitability that ultimately, I would put out my own shingle and try to demonstrate to the industry and to younger, younger advisors that there actually is a way to do this that helps clients.
1: I I felt like I used to work um, as a part of a financial firm and I felt like in in those environments a lot of it is just acquiring more assets under management and not necessarily want, worrying about the performance. I mean, your performance has to be good enough that people won't leave, but that's not going to be the the real thing that gets them in there. So, you know, when you're whenever you talk about the changes that need to be done, how how can the financial asset industry be structured in a way where everybody wins because we talk a lot on this show about how real estate can be a you know win for everybody um, yeah. how how can you make the financial asset uh, a win for everybody
0: yeah so so I I've studied the helping professions the helping professions are the group of professions that include doctors nurses therapists teachers social workers you think of professions like attorneys and accountants, what have you, there's a subset called the helping professions. I work in an industry. It's not even a profession, much less a helping profession. The reason this is an industry is because of the two prevailing compensation schemes. You either either take down huge commissions for pushing inappropriate products on people, or you take down 1% or 1.5% of a big pile of money every year in the form of an asset management fee which in my which is rife with conflicts of interest and overcharging okay so that's the problem and those compensation schemes are keeping this industry from becoming a profession what we did is we went out there with a single flat fee for financial planning and investment management independent of the size of the portfolio it then removes the conflicts of interest And it allows us to counsel our clients in whatever way they want to think about their balance sheet to build wealth. Okay, There's three ways people have basically built wealth in this country. Real estate, the stock market, or creating their own business, or being a very early employee at what becomes a very successful business. Those are the three routes. It is inappropriate, I think, to claim that one of those three is better or worse than the other. And we need financial professionals who are holistic enough and have the fee structure right that allows them to be agnostic as against those three ways of, bu- of building wealth
2: Bradley uh, I want to get really basic here in terms of someone that's never went through financial advising or or maybe has had just like their um, you know, a couple meetings with, say, like an Edward Jones or something. I just want to really just define that uh, very basically. But uh, out of my own curiosity from a holistic view, since you brought this up before we get into the foundational aspect of financial advising um, and, and wealth management, I'm just curious, out of the wealthy individuals that you work with, sure, would they need a holistic view and approach to building a, a diversified uh, wealth strategy, but out of business real estate and And stocks uh, is there one of those that seems to be more heavily influenced for the wealthier individuals
0: you're you're saying in in my clientele specifically or do you or do you mean in the country overall
2: well I think well obviously you can speak directly to your your clientele, but I guess it'd be more appropriate to ask for countrywide statistics um because yeah. this is we just put out an article on this and and we'll uh we'll, I'll tell you about our findings, but I'm curious to hear your your opinion on it.
0: Yeah, so you you so you probably have if you researched and wrote an article, you probably have better data than I do. So I so if we look at if there are pick a number, if there are 10 million people in this country with more than three million bucks, I don't even know if that's the number. If you if you analyze those 10 million and you say, where did this wealth come from? Right. So some of it's inherited, that's going to be a small percentage. Some is through real estate, some is through starting businesses, and then some are W-2 employees. With who are high income, who are fifty years old, who have lived below their means, and they just sock away every year and they build it up in the stock market, right? But I don't know the splits. If you know the splits and they're in your article, you know, that would be awesome. I'd love to see it.
2: Uh, yeah, just I guess in general the findings that we generally found, and this is this was broken down by um, by like wealth level, so income level, and it was like you know below. There, i think our first category was a, was a hundred thousand dollars it's like what what is your wealth made up of and the majority of that was like your primary residence was a big part of it and very little was with stocks and little to no real estate and like zero business then when you get to the, like the one to three million dollar range it actually was um it was it was pretty uh even between like income stocks and uh, and real estate and very little business because usually those would be people that are Maybe, maybe self-employed or, or high-income earners and have just saved over the years. But then it was interesting to see when you get to like the three to $10 million range of net worth, um, actually the, the majority of the assets for those individuals were held in real estate, still with very little business and actually very minimal stocks. But above $10 million when you get into... Um, kind of the ultra net worth with like 30 million and above. It's like business, the business aspects. These are people that have built large businesses. That's where the majority of their wealth was created. And actually they they still owned real estate. Like real estate was an aspect in all of these, but business was a much larger aspect of that. And they actually had a little bit larger stock portfolio. It's like they were more diversified, but they also had like the business was what created that large wealth. That was like generally the findings we found. I thought that was right. interesting.
0: Uh, it's it's very it's very interesting. the The three to ten surprises me a little bit, but depending on the numbers. if what you're saying for the typical person with six million that it's almost all real estate, I mean, that's certainly not been my experience. but but my client base is obviously going to be skewed versus, you know the 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 broader the, the you know the broader data in the United States, right? because <laughs> because our services are financial planning and investment management. And what we mean by investment management is stocks and bonds. So somebody who who has 99, 95% of their assets in real estate and loves investing in real estate and not the stock market is unlikely <laughs> to hire us. <laughs> but, if, but, but, but if they have $3 million in real estate and $3 million in a stock portfolio, then they're very likely to hire us. And then we can incorporate what they're doing in real estate kind of into the broader financial plan.
2: Yeah. And we didn't, we didn't extrapolate out age ranges in that. And I think that would be extremely important as well. um, Because I I think depending on where, like, where you're looking at with age ranges, like, for example, I think both in, and I'm not a huge fan of stocks. I don't do any stock investing and I don't know, I don't know stocks. Uh, um, You know, this is obviously a real estate specific show, but if just kind of looking at this um, from, you know, our perspective, it's like, if you just invested, I mean, even in like a handful of houses or even some, some generally good stocks for a long period of time, um, but it's certainly in real estate in the right locations where there's strong appreciation, like it's not difficult to get to that that 3 to $10 million range over a lifetime. The goal right. obviously would be to expedite that. Um, so that's one thing we didn't extrapolate out was age ranges. But let's, we got a little off topic. I was just curious to pick your brain on that. But I want to get back to like the financial advising aspect of this. Um, and certainly we'll get into, like your specific um business. I think that's very interesting how you've taken a different approach on this. But generally speaking, we most people I think they're we, we we haven't had a financial advisor on yet. But I think most people's experience with financial advice is like I was like I mentioned just someone walking into an Edward Jones or having like an individual uh financial advisor that maybe gives them a general, uh, generic uh, vanilla plan of here's where your age is, here's your risk threshold, here's how much you can You know, but can you just define like what is for someone that's never had any who doesn't know what like a financial advisors do or really hasn't gone through that? Just give us a breakdown of fundamentally what like what is that profession and generally what are they trying to help people accomplish?
0: For sure. So if you so to keep it extremely simple, when I hear the word financial advisor, two subservices come to mind that doesn't mean that every financial advisor office offers both subservices but but the two subservices are investment management and financial planning if most financial advisors are focused on investment management and i uh, you could argue that's because it is easier to stick somebody in a 60-40 portfolio and because they're paid a percentage of the assets that that is the dominant orientation over the past 30 years or so a bunch of there's been a lot of progress in financial planning so there's now a credential called the CFP certified financial planner there's 80,000 of them now more than ever you can actually get a decent or more than decent financial plan right and so that's basically everything else so that's When do you want to retire? How much risk should you take? Uh, Do you have insurance gaps? Uh, Are you optimizing your social security? If you have a kid, how much life insurance should you have? How much can you afford to spend? Are you saving in the right vehicles? It's basically everything else. And the irony is that the value tends to actually be in the financial planning, but the way the services are, are priced and charged is off of the portfolio.
2: And and how does pricing work? Can you break that down too? I don't think a lot of people understand
0: that. Yeah, so so it used to be, if you think about a stockbroker, a stockbroker, an old school stockbroker would earn a commission every time they bought or sold you in or out of something. And there was tremendous incentive to churn accounts to generate commissions. That still exists, but not as much of it. So now... The shift has been to something called the AUM model, which is instead is somebody's going to charge you one or one and a half percent of the assets under management, AUM, assets under management. So if you have 500 grand and you go to your Edward Jones guy and he's like, okay, it's 1.5%, that's 7,500 bucks a year for the half million for them to, to buy some securities for you and sell them or manage that. Now, as the assets grow, their fee grows with the assets. And at first blush, that seems smart because incent- incentives are aligned. But where it gets subtle is I certainly don't believe that that Edwards Jones guy or anybody can outguess what the stock market's gonna do or pick individual stocks. So the question is, as your portfolio grows, should you be enjoying the economies of scale in your portfolio? Or should you be sharing those economies of scale with your advisor? And I would say, don't share them. The other problem here is the conflicts of interest. Because if, once that Edward Jones guy gets your cat, gets your investment, if you then say, hey, I'm thinking about you know, uh, buying a piece of investment real estate. Now that F- F- Edward Jones guy has a massive built-in conflict of interest there. Because if he agrees with you that you should go buy this house or whatever, you're, he's basically taking money out of his pocket. Now he may be the nicest guy in the world and the most ethical. The troubling things about conflicts of interest is that our brain, that we have blind spots in our brains where we can't even see the effects that they have on us. That's troubling.
2: Yeah. No, I, I think that's. Uh, thank you for breaking that down. You did an excellent job on that, and and the this the psychology behind it is is extremely important to understand because. Certainly, financial advice is is good, um, but I think one one point I always try to mention is when I'm seeking financial advice or any advice in my life in any aspect, I like to take advice from people who actually are doing it themselves and are at a better place place than me. Um, so so certainly, what you mentioned about like the conflict of interest with yeah. If, and and i hear this we hear this a lot is not a lot but sometimes people are like well my financial advisor says i shouldn't buy real estate because i wanted to do this and it's like well yeah because they're compensated based on you keeping your money with them in the stocks right but you need to no one's going to look out for your money in your your financial planning more than you will yourself it's it's your capital and so you need to take some sort of accountability there but ultimately i do encourage people to look for professionals i mean people like you Bradley who have been successful but and this is with any aspect of life that are people that are in the place that you want to be. Why would I be taking financial advice from someone that if I want to invest in real estate and do these other things that they have no knowledge of um, or that I'm already ahead of financially uh, and where I'm at. So just, just something to think about, but Adam's going to stop me from getting too far down on my soapbox with this. So
1: before we got started talking and recording um, we mentioned the 4% rule, which is one of the things that um, you said there was a study that showed what are some of the, common you know you hear about things like you know your age should correspond or correlate with the bonds you hold and all that there are a lot of those kind of general advice you hear out there are there any that hold more true than others and are there any that you know people have heard that you know of that are just absolute
0: garbage wow yeah um there are some i mean i don't know where to start but i'll keep it very brief let me just pick on the two that you mentioned so your age in bonds, um, I think, is losing steam. So it used to be that the rule of thumb was just your age in bonds. So if you're 25, you have 75% in stocks, 25% in bonds. And then when you're 75, by the time you're 75, that has inverted. Okay, So fine, it kind of makes some sense. But but there's been so much thinking since and so much emphasis on something called sequence of returns risk. right? So let's say... May, let's let's say that you're investing in real estate, It doesn't matter what you're investing in, but you retire at fifty five. Well, you're not going to claim social security, let's say till seventy to maximize the benefit. So there's a there's a kind of a vulnerable window there of fifteen years. If your real estate empire is robust enough and you have very predictable cash flow that you already have built, then you're laughing. You, you've You've got all that passive income. If you're not that person, then then, you, you're going to have to spend some of your assets over those 15 years to get you to Social Security. Once you've got social and the real estate is there and the dividends are there, you, you, arguably you're in fat city. During that more vulnerable period, you are particularly subject to sequence of returns risk if you're involved with stocks. So to ameliorate sequence of returns risk, People have, have said, look, let's, t- let's swing for the fences in our 20s, 30s, and 40s. Let's take some risk off the table to, to, so we can sail through sequence of returns risk. And then when we emerge in our 70s on the back end of it, just let the stock portion run. right? And, and so it's a more dynamic and powerful view of asset al- allocation over someone's life right, than, than, than that old, you know, percentage in bonds. And I will say, even though I'm not a real estate investing expert, if I have a client with million dollars of real estate, at the end of the day, that's just another asset. And so, we have to look at that. Is it leverage? Is it not leverage? Is it risky or is it less risky? Should we think of it as more of a bond? Should we think of it as more of stock or 50-50? How variable are the cash flows? Like, all of that can be incorp. Canon should be incorporated into what's happening on the stock and bond side. Right. Your other example, go ahead, Zach.
2: Oh, no, I just, you got my, my brain turning here with like, I've, I've never actually looked at different, I'm thinking about different asset classes just in my own portfolio of like, Hey, is this more of like a say, is, is this more of a bond type of real estate? Or is this more of a, you know, aggressive stock? Like maybe your, your flip or, you know, your real aggressive short-term rental uh, could be more of like a, uh, you know, more of your stock aggressive play yeah. where you have higher risk, potential higher return. Whereas like a lot of the commercial or long-term rentals that we own, I think those would be in a in a bond category uh, yeah. where you get maybe a little bit lower return, but it's predictable and safer. So I'm sorry to interrupt.
0: Yeah. Now, I think it's very smart to think that way. And and I heard one professor who said, look, instead of thinking about asset allocation as stocks and bonds or equity and fixed income, he softened the term. He said, Let's say you have five million bucks of assets doesn't matter what they are, it could be real estate, it could be stocks, it could be bonds, it could be cash. What portion are in equity-like investments? Which to, which to your point, Zach, could include the flips and the more speculative stuff that you're doing. And which, what portion is in bond-like assets? And you could shoehorn into that commercial real estate. So he's offering a broader frame on thinking about assets. Very powerful. So so now it's no longer, okay, we're real estate investments and your stocks and bonds and this other person is X. It kind of uh, is an umbrella, it, it, it kind of transcends all of that. And it just says, let's start looking at assets on whether they're more equity-like or fixed income-like. And that's powerful.
2: Yeah, it's very interesting. I would say that the majority of our listeners are, are diversified across multiple asset classes. Um, certainly they, if I, I think vast majority of people have retirement uh, accounts set up and things like this. Not everyone is as aggressive as say me, who is only real estate because because that's what we know. Um, Also we have, you know, the business side, which is, you know, um, as you mentioned, that's, that's the investment, uh, the third investment way uh, as well. But let me ask you this because this is something, this is uh, something I remember that stands out. It's been over a decade since I've had any sort of like, from a financial planning standpoint of someone that's like in that, that category or that profession that's really um, identified as a financial planner telling me like when to buy stocks and things like this. But um, I remember going through that um, meeting where he was showing me a graph and he said, okay, like year 65 or whatever, which I was like, well, I don't want to retire at 65. I want to retire earlier. He's like, whatever day you want to retire, you need to have more, more bonds. He's like, okay, if you have this amount of money, you can anticipate a, maybe there's a term for this, I forget, but you can have this like safe return, like this is what you would expect your your portfolio to produce. And it was like three and a half percent or something like this, at least at that point in time. Um, And I'm looking, I'm thinking about this going, man, and this is after many years of like, okay, inflation and future potential. I was like, I would need millions and millions of dollars to retire at what I would be comfortable with at three and a half percent. And I know it's I know it's a mix, and you kind of talked about this with the seventy five twenty five rule. But can can you just allow, like give us your opinion on that at all? As far as like what kind of the standard expectation is, and, and how you think about like retirement in general with these type of assets, and what kind of expected return um, you you see a lot with a lot of your clients. Sure. So, so that was kind of a shotgun answer. No, question no, it, with it, a lot it, of. It, I it, apologize. It, it,
0: It's helpful. Let me define a couple of terms. Um, Expected return, to me, says you own an investment of any kind. And what, what are you expecting to return from that specific investment? Now, you can extrapolate that to say you own 20 different investments. And so let's look at the weight average, the weighted average, blended expected return across all of the assets. Expected return is not a guarantee of return, one way to think about expected return that's taught which i like is there's something called the risk free rate the risk free rate the benchmark for that has been u.s treasuries because the federal government has never defaulted and we may have opinions about whether they will but the federal government has never defaulted so most academics will agree that the risk free rate is us a u.s treasury note okay then you get a risk premium which is how you are compensated for taking investment risk. That's the risk premium. And the the, the bigger the risk you take, the more you have to expect to be compensated for that risk. So if I buy a stock, the risk premium might be five points above the risk-free rate. So if the risk-free rate is four, I expect that stock to return 10% a year. If I buy a bond, be 4% plus one if i buy a piece of real estate without leverage right then that's going to be somewhere in that range of 5 5 to 9 if i do something more advanced like lever the hell out of it or i can reliably pick pieces of real estate that are underpriced or i have access to tradespeople who can do work under you know under certain i mean if there's there's all these levers that one could theoretically pull in real estate to to get essentially returns higher than the risk. So so a purist would say in investing, there's no such thing as expected returns higher than than, than the risks. Risk and return is inextricably linked, right? I generally believe that. In real estate, there are people who have been so successful using leverage and buying things under market and tax
2: benefits
0: yeah so you can add all this (laughs) you can you can add all this stuff up and then talk yourself into the idea that the returns are actually much greater than the risks so people who are all in on real estate have convinced themselves that the return expectation is far higher than the expected risk and that
2: that kind of and this is really interesting to me, but I'm kind of hearing all of this with one underlying theme of, at least in the real estate aspect of control, right? Having a little bit more, like if you are a savvy investor and savvy individual, and you can go out and create this opportunity, then that gives you a little bit more control to create that return. It's not maybe inherently there, but by being engaged in the asset, you you can create that threshold where the return is maybe a little bit more attractive than the risk threshold, but um, yeah. I think this that helps to compare a lot of things like apples to apples too, if you're just looking at like a, an investment that you're just you're just buying.
0: Yeah, um, and one of the interesting things about our clients is they tend to be older. I mean my specialty is helping people that are going to be retiring in the next five years reposition assets to drive income you know during retirement. Okay, So some people show up with these giant real estate portfolios and there's enough stable income there that they're laughing. Other people show up and they may have one or two investment properties, but the income there is nowhere near enough to on its own carry the day. So they have to complement that with social security and a pension and dividends and all this other stuff that we do. So expected return of an investment or of an asset is a different concept then the the percentage of the asset of the value that we can safely pull out every year to support a spending plan for life, right? So there is a difference, but let's say a client shows up with $4 million of assets and I don't even know what the hell they are, okay? Without looking, even knowing what they are, I would probably multiply the 5 million bucks by let's say 5%. Or four percent, so that gives me two hundred to two hundred and fifty before taxes. I will then add whatever pension or social security benefit they will have in the future. Okay, that that gives you a very rough swag at at the amount of income that they should that they should be able to reliably generate for the rest of their lives before taxes then you need to understand okay what state do they live in what are what are the embedded gains what are the different types of accounts to get some type of reasonable tax rate and not all of this is back of the napkin crap right if they hire us then we will fire up our sophisticated planning software and turn over every rock and really build something kind of you know bo- you know bottoms up but but that's how i would think about you know your other question and this very important difference between expected returns on an investment versus how much money can you afford to pull from your assets to support spending the rest of your life—they are different concepts.
1: So when you look at um, your assets that you have, you know, with real estate, it's fairly—you know—your property is doing what it's doing. You can choose. You're saying, "Hey, this property is having maintenance issues, or I'm having tenant issues, and it's time for me to sell this." and do this that and the other when it comes to especially like stocks and your investment uh you know whoever you're using for your you know to manage your investments how do you know going in or what should you be looking for to see if you should be selling assets or if you should be firing your manager kind of what are some of the things that people should be looking for in that regard to make sure that they are not being taken advantage
0: of yeah Great questions. Totally different questions. I'll take the second question first. If you think about a doctor, you know, there's that there's that joke. You know, what do you call the guy who finished last in his uh, medical school class? You know, doctor. Okay. Unfortunately, in the, in the financial advice world, anybody can call themselves a financial advisor. I mean, th- there's really no regulation uh, uh, against calling yourself a financial advisor, but you, but you can't say you have an MD without actually having an MD, right? That's the first problem there's massive just there's a massive competence problem okay and then i alluded to the conflict of interest problem so if you take low competence and you mix it with conflicts of interest you've got an issue so you so but there are ways to kind of sniff out competence and conflicts of interest So, of the 250,000 financial advisors out there, there are some who do have their CFP. There are some that do charge a flat fee. I mean, they exist, right? So, you can screen out 90 or 95% of the noise if you care to do it. On your first question, which is like, when do you know to buy or sell or all these things? To me, that's a almost philosophical or religious question. Right? There are two different belief systems out there when it comes to participating in the stock market. One of them, and the one I prefer, is best captured by the brand and firm Vanguard. So Vanguard is the king of index investing. So they, will build, they just build a S&P 500. The S&P 500 is an, exi- is an actual list of stocks. Vanguard just grabs the, grabs the, the list owns those companies in that proportion does it for almost free does it tax efficiently and then you just buy that etf but for every one of those there's a piece of junk (laughs) that may own 500 random large stocks purportedly chosen by an expert that's no better than a chimpanzee that's charging 50 or 80 times as much as vanguard is So if your advisor has put you in the piece of junk, then you should swap it out with the Vanguard ETF. That's what I believe. The other religion believes that smart people who do enough research and have enough skills can predictably outperform the stock market. Unfortunately, the evidence is not there. And even Warren Buffett, who has $150 is on record saying that hedge funds are bullshit and that... His clients, he 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 would advise all Americans if they're going to participate in the stock market to just buy the S and P five hundred from Vanguard.
2: <laughs> yeah, and there's a lot of a lot that goes into that, right? Like, why is the average person, if you even an educated individual, not not outperforming? Uh, but there's a lot of like timing is a huge thing. emotions, individuals, um, you know, different different life life cir- circumstances. I mean, it's just I. Adam, I forget who the guy was that we interviewed um, not too long ago that talked about this. Actually, no, it was uh, Keith um, Weinhold uh, that talked about the seven different ways that uh, or the seven different things that come into effect when you're, you know, decision making and stock buying, and that's that's re- leading to why people are not outpacing yeah. the market as they well. There, as they there, there's there's
0: a there's a lot of sabotage, self sabotage. Like you cannot afford to blink. So, like I had, you know, I had a couple clients who blinked in march of 2020 so COVID hit stocks were down 30 percent but only for a couple of weeks he blinked i begged him not to blink he was my only client that blinked we sold a couple million dollars of stock and immediately rebounded and he you know has he essentially lost a million dollars by blinking okay so if you're gonna participate in the stock market you can't blink you have to ignore the volatility you need to trust in risk-taking and entrepreneurship around the globe and stick it in that box and then take it out 30 years later and don't allow what is happening in the news or what your neighbor is saying or claiming to make you blink.
2: Yeah. Yeah. A lot of a lot of emotions there, emotional turbulence, and there's there's always something, um, you know. That's that's obviously a lot of the, <laughs> a lot of the fluctuation we see in the market is is due to emotional influence in in the media, right? With just different things going on, just in in general. But uh, Bradley, do you do you only work with high net worth individuals? I mean, what's I'm just kind of curious your your typical um, yep. demographic so, for clients. Well,
0: right. So I don't I don't have a policy that says I only work with high net worth individuals. But our fee structure tends to result in that. So we charge $9,500 per year per client, per client household. So if it's a husband and a wife, we're not going to double dip. It's $9,500 per year. Okay. So for that, you get financial planning and investment management. If you've got half a million bucks, that's 2%. So next to the Edward Jones guy, I may be more expensive. He may be at 1.5%. If you've got five million bucks and you're paying the ninety five hundred, then we're a huge bargain. So, so, so we're very idealistic. We're one of the only firms out there in the market with a single fixed flat fee for these services. That's uh, that has mm-hmm. yeah, that has tended to attract larger portfolios. The people who tend to have larger portfolios tend to be older, and so when I recognize that this is what was happening. I I I I bet the firm on becoming true experts in retirement income planning. And so that's the special sauce, right? So we're experts in Roth conversions and income floors and bond ladders and withdrawal sequencing and tax planning like all these things that this that people need and, but I didn't set out for that. I set out being idealistic around the fee, and then I ended up backing into the target demographic.
2: Yeah, I, th- thanks for defining that. And um, I guess and that's just happened naturally from um, you know the, the clients that are attracted to your services. So that's interesting. I guess my my question to you: Well, would you? I want to talk about the income floor, but b- before we do that, can you? speak to some, just something about like, you know, what what have you seen just in general? This doesn't need to be real specific, but just out of curiosity, like what the clients that you're working with that have been successful and are in a good position to retire, whether that's financially or, uh, well, obviously financially, but maybe even earlier than they anticipated. Like what, what are some common things that you see these wealthy people doing uh, throughout their lives um, that has led them to be successful where they're at now?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, this is going to sound so trite, but I, I do think that people who start early and who know that living, who, who know that living below their means matters and who have the uh, fortitude or emotional intelligence or whatever is required to actually live below their means. So whether it's 5, 10, 15, 20 percent that you're able to save from your income and invest, And then I think the other related point is the fortitude to just not blink very often, right? To be comfortable with risk and to recognize that you're making long-term decisions, uh, right? Uh, That that seem I would say those are the attributes. And I would say, whether it's stock market investing or real estate or something else, I, I feel, I feel like that, that, that those two crowds, you know, presumably would have a lot of those same, traits
1: yeah i remember you know you were talking about blinking there i don't remember where i read it but a few years ago i remember reading that if you look at you know people say the stock market average is 10 a year or something like that but realistically if you miss a few just a few key spots here and there it's a lot lower than that and like you were saying bradley if you blink if you happen to be blinking during one of those time frames your returns are not going to be anywhere near what they could have been if you just stuck with it. There's
0: there's awesome charts where like there's 200 trading days a year. So in the past 20 years, there's 4,000 trading days. Well, if you missed the 40 best or something like that, your returns are half of what your returns would have been if you just stayed invested. I mean, you know, people have crunched those numbers and it's its dramatic and the, the expression there that has nothing to do with investing, but I love would be, you have to be in it to win it. Right. So you have to, you have right you have to be in it and you have to right and you have to stay in it and if you're if you're either so scared or or so arrogant i think the arrogance is even worse that you can outthink the stock market by reading the you know, the tea leaves like okay well the debt ceiling and i'm concerned about currency in japan and and the unemployment rate that came over here therefore i'm going to sell my stocks right convincing yourself that you have that type of power is the ultimate expression of arrogance. Yeah, that's
2: that's huge. And I think that's, you, you probably hit the nail on the head, Bradley. Why why I'm not uh, a real savvy uh, stock investor is just it's too sophisticated for me. I'm a simple guy, right, Adam? And I like just buying simple cash flowing properties again and again. But we just talked about, um, this will come out probably after this, but I just did a recording on the five, things I've done over the past decade of investing that has allowed me to be really successful to the point I am. And the, the number one thing is just start investing, never stop, it's just, yeah. keep, just buy. And obviously, and then the second one would be intentional on where you buy, so location is important. But um, I think the point is, and we talk about this all the time, it's, it's time in market, not timing the market. Uh, and no. just just investing wisely, having a plan and following that plan and consistently doing that. Time and time again. Let's talk about the income floor, though, a little bit, because that's something that I'm not super familiar with. I'm interested to hear, you know, like, what is the income floor and, um, you know, anything else you'd like to to share about that?
0: No, I'm glad we're going to get a chance to talk about this, because I would argue that cash flows from commercial real estate, cash flows from the portion of your real estate holdings that are the safer portions of the real estate holdings, those cash flows Definitely could be someone's income floor or be a component of an income floor. So here's the aha. You know, Einstein said we should keep things as simple as possible, but no simpler. My industry is guilty of making, in this dimension, things too simple, which is how risk tolerant is an individual investor? I don't care if it's, again, stocks, bonds, real estate, whatever. How much risk should an individual investor take? The amount to let you sleep at night. That that question is a little bit baffling, and it has baffled the uh, financial advice industry. So, so in any case, I think what some thinkers did about twenty years ago is they said it's the wrong question. All of us, almost all of us, are carrying around two different um, uh, relationships with risk. When it comes to our non-discretionary spend, right, our groceries, keeping the lights on, everything else, most of us, if not the vast majority of us, are not risk-tolerant, especially when we think about stopping working and having cash flow in retirement. Right? So, we're risk averse with respect to the amount that we spend on non discretionary items. However, we are perfectly comfortable with risk for the assets that are used to spend on uh, more discretionary things. Like, if we want to go to Tuscany every year for three weeks, but it turns out we can only go every other year, and in the down years we go to Florida for, for, for a week, like, your life is not over, right? But but if you cannot maintain your core lifestyle each month in retirement that you've uh, gotten used to, that's kind of disappointing. If you can't pay for your grandchildren's education or you can't, Lee endow a chair at your alma mater, eh? Okay, it didn't work out. But you need to be able to you know, uh, buy clothes and groceries. You get you guys get the, the distinction. Okay. Yeah. So 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 Pete, so the industry has failed. Because it has failed to understand all of us are walking around with these two different relationships with risk. Enter the income floor. So, if you come to me with five million bucks of anything, and we do a financial plan, and we look at your spending, and we say you want to retire at 55, you're not going to take Social Security till 70, you, you maybe have a pension, but maybe it's small, there's generally a gap that we need to finance. Okay. So, so that so that you have line of sight into the cash flows and that they're predictable and safe to finance your needs. A lot of the successful people that are listening to you are have a massive head start on this, you could argue, because if they have enough safe real estate that's throwing off enough cash, they already basically have their income floor lined up or locked in but but uh, m- a lot of people don't have that or they may have enough from the real estate to do half of the floor right so for those people we have different techniques different types of products etfs you know income annuities different things that we can use to to uh, different lego pieces to round out your income floor and then with the rest of the assets we just we just we we just take a lot of risk right So so the rest of the assets are in stocks or maybe in your world, it would be in more speculative real estate. And we use the risk assets to keep up with inflation, to finance the wants and wishes, right? To finance legacy to our kids. And and so part of this is functional. Part of this is mental accounting, but in a very positive way. So if you have a robust income floor, no matter what the components are, that really helps you shift your mindset from an accumulation mindset when you're working to a decumulation mindset, which is beginning to live off of your assets in retirement. So would it be appropriate
2: to say an income floor is basically like the baseline residual income you need to maintain the lifestyle that you want?
0: Yeah. And you could, yes. And you, well, to, to, to maintain the portion of the lifestyle that you regard as, needs because you may want a lifestyle that includes $80,000 of travel but i doubt mo- most of my clients do not equate a dollar of travel as a dollar of groceries right they're going to say the groceries are needs the travel is a want right that distinction is important they're both in your ideal lifestyle right but do you, do you see the the distinction
2: Yeah, and I think this this is interesting to me because I'm tying it back to your previous point about um, you know, the the successful people that you work with that you've seen over the years have have maintained or been conscious about living below their means and maintaining a level of of lifestyle that is still you know productive and and makes them happy, but not not doing what we call this this income creep thing, um, or this lifestyle creep where you, you you earn a little bit more money and then you spend a little bit more and then you earn a little bit more and you spend a little bit more and um, I think a lot of us in, in America at least are guilty of that, uh, which which can be challenging to really like get ahead and, yeah. and create financial independence. But Adam and I are actually just after this. This is a lot of good nuggets of knowledge you're leaving us with, Bradley, because we are going to record an episode specifically on thinking about risk and how to take risk. Because I would argue that every action you take financially uh, has risk associated with it. Including, including inaction on not doing anything. Inflation and everything else is economics is happening, whether you're taking action or not. So all very interesting things to hear about.
0: Yeah, th- I actually have a chapter in my book about, about this. And I don't know if you've ever studied what a chief risk officer does for a corporation, but they maintain something called a risk register. And I agree with you that like holding bonds... You could say is not risky. However, you now ex- bonds don't do well against as a hedge against inflation. Real estate and stocks are the only two proven, cost-effective inflation hedges. You got a bunch of people waving their arms about gold and all this other stuff, but it's really yep. stocks and real estate are the inflation hedges available that are cost-effective and addressable. So when you make the decision to take Risk assets off the balance sheet and replace them with cash or bonds, you're just toggling from market risk to inflation risk, and you're now exposing your balance sheet to inflation. So there is a bit of pick your poison, and I do agree with you, it's not just the risk of inaction, but any action you take could reduce one risk and increase another, And so, I've increasingly thought about our role as being the chief risk officer in our clients' lives, where we can look dispassionately or clinically at this register of risks and then help with the strategies for each one, recognizing that you're not going to eliminate all of them. And if you address one with too much exuberance, it'll just show up in other places,
2: that's interesting well and i have to ask before adam wraps this up here but um where, where does crypto fit into any of this or or at all i'm just crypto i'm just curious into anything zach <laughs> we get asked about it i mean and we got that like digital i mean is that is that a space you even like talk about at all or no
0: so 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 we really don't i mean i personally have not kept up with it i it's too new To have any data on like how does it correlate or not correlate with other asset classes it's so interesting you can hear you can find any theory you want uh we don't uh put it in any of our investment models some of our clients have it if they ask us about it i mean one of the guys on my team did write up a short one-sheeter that kind of summarizes how different people are talking about crypto i guess i would say Uh, What what we care about is diversification, right? So we are taught as financial advisors, and I'm sure you think about this in real estate. If you own a million dollars of stock, if any one stock, any single stock represents more than 10% of that million, if you're working with a financial advisor, they they should say, okay, that's a concentrated position. Let's talk about it okay and so maybe in real estate you know you guys have the same concept i don't know right but but diversification is important and so and so we in in my book i also talk about core and explore as an investment philosophy and you could think about that in real estate too so so core and explore might be let's take 80% of our assets and invest them in a broadly diversified index fund from vanguard or in your world let's have a bunch of commercial real estate properties that's the core of the portfolio now around the edges let's explore with different ideas and if a client to, to me of mine says okay it's 80 20 core and explore and within the 20 one of my explorations is crypto and another one is angel investing and another one is what private equity or something it's like knock yourself out even if it goes to zero it's not going to have a yeah. material effect you know on the portfolio but you're, i don't gambling try... money right yeah. Is what... yeah some people call that their vegas account but yeah. uh, one of my favorite lines is my crystal ball is still hazy so if, if one of my clients tries to come to me and ask me if they should buy crypto i'm not going to get i'm just not going to get sucked into giving an opinion does that make sense yeah.
1: especially whenever there's so many different crypto coins out there and you never know what's going to win and all of that fun stuff yeah it's i would agree that it's uh, completely vegas money And just uh, invest what you're willing to lose in crypto is uh, (laughs) is what I would say about that. But I'm also not a financial advisor or planner. So, Bradley, I really want to thank you for joining us today. The website for everybody is BradleyClark.com. That's BradleyClark.com. Again, Bradley is the founder of Clark Asset Management, former publisher of The Motley Fool. And he has his new book, Be the Bird. Um, Bradley, would you mind just giving us a, a quick one-minute rundown of what uh, what Be the Bird is?
0: Yeah. Well, it started as just another book about retirement planning. And then I, after I wrote it, I'm like, does anybody even care? There's thousands of these. So it ended up actually being a book about confidence. And I explore, not a PhD in psychology, but I really interviewed a bunch of people and I read voraciously and it turns out that confidence decay- peaks generally at 55 or 60 in general, because we, we have we have all this cash flow coming in. We're still fit. We feel powerful. We feel in control. It, it turns out confidence decays can decay after that, because our bodies are breaking down our minds break down. Uh, if if we were the leader of a big organization and now we've retired and they and we don't have the validation or the power or whatever, and I. And because I serve people that are segwaying into retirement, it fascinated me. So I dug into all this stuff around the power of positive psychology and the power of optimism and habit and all those things. So this is a book about how to achieve and maintain the feeling of relaxed confidence in your financial life for for life. And then below that includes a powerful financial architecture, but also some powerful ideas from other disciplines like psychology and life coaching and other things.
2: We'll have to have you back Bradley to talk about the psychology of retirement, because it's something that so many people are striving for, especially early retirement in this case and creating, taking control of your financial picture. But, you know, it, I think it's an interest, interesting thing to explore the personal development and mindset that happens when, when you actually achieve that. And then, and then what, um, you know, typically we found the people that are driven to, to achieve early retirement just go on to do bigger and better things. Uh, and it's just like, it's just a concept, you know, it's interesting, but.
1: yeah. All right. Well, everybody, you can check that out at bradleyclark.com. If you want to check out some uh, potential investment properties to add into your uh, plan, you can check us out at renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com. Uh, you can see all of our podcast episodes there, see our inventory and just see in general what we're about. Really appreciate the time you spent educating yourself today. Don't forget, leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you use. Take a screenshot and send it to podcasts at retirement.com And we will get a gift card sent out to you as a thank you and enter you in a $500 closing cost credit giveaway that we'll be doing on July 1st of 2023. Again, thank you so much for joining us and we'll talk to you on the next episode.